You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. A quick show note. The Zoom meeting kept having interruptions, so when it sounds like I'm talking over my guest, it's really just Zoom having a problem. It's not me. It's Zoom. So uh, I do a little more editing than usual. You might not even notice this, but I thought I would jump in and let you know that uh, when she gets cut off, it's the meeting, and sometimes the recording worked, and sometimes it didn't. All right, back to the show. Hey, thanks for listening. This is Joel Albrecht, as always, and today on Zoom, I have Becky Laura Hector. She was diagnosed on the autism spectrum as an adult and has since become a dynamic autism advocate. Bit of a tongue twister. She's a consultant, speaker, and author with a focus on living an active, positive life. Her work includes autism and neurodiversity consulting, public speaking engagements, a monthly newsletter, monthly musing, monthly musings, and a weekly YouTube news show, Neurodiversity Newsstand, and being an assistant editor feature writer for Spectrum Women magazine. Becca has published multiple articles and books about life on the autism spectrum with the goal of spreading acceptance, building understanding, and encouraging self-advocacy. Becca left nonprofit to pursue dual certifications as a certified autism specialist, CSA, and cognitive specialist, BCCS, and to open her autism and neurodiversity consulting business. An animal lover with a special affinity for cats, Becca spends most of her free time with her many animals, her husband, and their emotional support animal, ESA, Sir Walter Underfoot. Sir Walter Underfoot travels, does woofing engagements, and has his very own Instagram, which I follow. Really amazing looking animal. How's, <laughs> how's, uh, how's Colorado today? Uh, it's beautiful today. It's beautiful most days. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to lie. It's really very pretty here. Um, and I live up in the mountains, so I, I don't live in a city or anything. I, I live in the wilderness of Colorado, uh-huh. um, and I love it. Yeah. There's only one city to live in there, isn't there? Well, there's two. Boulder, there's two. if you want to count Boulder and Denver, okay. I guess. <laughs> we have a few. <laughs> you um, can almost count Boulder. Still, I live far away from neighbors. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. So if we have internet uh, troubles... It's because it's she lives fault. far away from neighbors. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll edit it out anyway. Um, and how, this is, this is the question I always have to ask for my wife and also myself, because we follow Walt, Sir Walter Underfoot. How many animals do you have now? A lot. Um, I have six cats inside. I have two cats outside. Uh, I have four dogs and two snakes. Wow. House. Yes. All right. Now that's nice. That's great. And what kind of snakes? Uh, they are ball pythons, both of them. Okay. So like how old? Um, th- one of them's about three. The other one's about six. Mm-hmm. They've got a long time to go. And they do. Very yeah. They're exciting creatures. <laughs> <laughs> but they live a long time, right? They live yes, like they 20, do. 30 years. Yeah. We have a uh, we have two cats and now we have a a, um, a pet scrub jay, um, oh. which he's wild, but he likes to eat peanuts out of our hands. <laughs> That's also an Instagram. Um, also, oh, thanks a lot for your work. I mean, I really I really appreciate what you do. I think it's pretty rare. I know it's got to be a challenge, um, yeah. and. Yeah, it's got to be a huge challenge, and there it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people doing the kind of work you do. Uh, I did see that you were on a lot of um, people's podcasts that 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 is what they do. So I'm, you know, I like to put it out there to more people, especially because you uh, you were diagnosed, you know, as an adult, and there yeah. might be a lot of people who still don't quite understand what they're going through. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about like how were you diagnosed? How did how did that come about? Um, well, about eight years ago, so right now I'm 44, but when I was 36, I had, um, I was in a place. So I, I sort of at 33, I quit my 13th job in 15 years. Um, I had done well in college, but was struggling in employment, like nobody's business. Um, I could pick up any skill set. They were all very different jobs. But once I kind of had mastered the skill set and I started to notice the people around me and their social things and things, stuff would get confusing um, or I'd get frustrated and um, my direct bluntness would come in the way of things. Um, And so I'd end up quitting or getting fired. Um, And that's just kind of the routine. So I would have a job for three or four months. 
then I lose my job, I'd be out for a few months, get another job, and it was just this recurring cycle. So I didn't have a career, I just had jobs, you know, just trying to function as an adult, quote unquote, is supposed to, right? And I was trying to do that very much. Um, but that last job at age 33, um, I had what is known within the autism community as uh, a burnout. Um, I basically was in a meeting with um, my boss and his boss, and I was asking for an accommodation about my schedule. And somewhere in the middle of it, I kind of realized that I wasn't going to get the accommodation that I was asking for. Um, and I literally heard my brain crack. Like I remember hearing and feeling like my brain split in half and I just walked out and left and went back to my mom's house, crawled into the bed I grew up in um, and didn't come out. I spent three years in bed. So from 33 to 36, I was suicidal, in bed, homebound um, <clears throat> and just kind of breathing really. And that's it. Um, and I was with my mom. And so I was the only child of a single mom. It was just the two of us. And so um, we were just living like that. And um, I'd had migraines my whole life. And they had always said to me, if your migraines change, if the, you know, anything about them is different, always let us know, come check it out, blah, 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 all this whole thing, right? So my whole life since nine years old, I've sort of been in that cycle with migraines. Well, my migraines changed and I started to do all the things I was supposed to do, journal and, and calendar it and see what it is and this whole thing. Um, and because I was homebound and I wanted to know more, um, rather than go to the doctor, I went to WebMD. And on WebMD, I started to look around for what might be going on with my migraines. I was having this smell that nobody else could smell and it was like preceding my migraines. And so I'm looking for things. So olfactory hallucinations comes up, pituitary tumors comes up, um, a whole bunch of other things. Um, and they were too scary. So I went to Wikipedia and um, I started going on in there. And that's sort of like a vortex. You know, you read the thing, you click on something on the bottom, you're on to the next one and it just goes on and on. So I was doing that on there um, and I came across something called sensory processing disorder. And I started to read about it and I thought, well, this sounds extremely familiar to me. How odd, like side note, put that aside. That was interesting, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and mm -hmm. so I just kind of took that. And at the bottom of that article was uh, Asperger's syndrome. And I clicked on that and I had never heard of Asperger's syndrome. I had heard of autism, um, but I grew up in the 80s. So autism in the 80s was a very specific thing. It was white boys that either were behavioral problems in the classroom or were non-speaking. That's it. Um, so I didn't fit any of those categories or anything. So in my head, you know, kids that were autistic went to a separate school. They took separate transportation. We don't touch them. We get the cooties, right? It was very much, that was the mentality. We freely use the R word all over the place. There were, you know, oh, it's right. just the right. way that I grew up. Right. And um, so reading this thing about autism was like absurd to me. It was so crazy. Um, but there I was reading this thing about Asperger's syndrome and I felt like I was reading my biography. So I um, not knowing what else to do. I took the link and I emailed it to my mom. Um, I didn't tell her anything ahead of time. I wanted her to have a non-biased opinion about it. Um, so I waited three days for her to check her email and finally she does and came into my room and said, oh my God, you found it. We've been looking for it your whole life. This is it. Where do you want to go and take care of it? And that was the moment. That was the moment when my whole life changed. That's really amazing. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of interesting things I got from that story. I mean, one is, uh, I'm a musician and an actor and know a lot of them. And we can relate to a lot of what you were talking about. Having 13 jobs, yeah, a lot yeah, of us do that. Right? A lot of us do that in our 20s and 30s. Uh, yeah. A lot of artists go through the same thing. You know, it makes me curious how many might be uh, on the scale. Um, you know, and obviously a lot of them have been diagnosed that way. Yeah, a lot of them yeah. are. Uh, so that was very interesting. And um, also the fact that you got something off the internet that was useful. That <laughs> Right. That's, That's the thing that right? struck me. I mean, it was lots of labor to get there, but I got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I've been, I've had mysterious problems also, and um, still looking. But sometimes, yeah. sometimes you find some really good information on there. So that's absolutely amazing. And then, so where did you go from there? Because I'm actually very curious. Like, 
what is um, what is Asperger's for us completely ignorant people, and how does that is that a medical diagnosis or a neurological diagnosis, or is it strictly diagnostic? Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so first of all, I was diagnosed um, about almost ten years ago. So when I was diagnosed, we still used the term Asperger's syndrome. At the time, there's a big fancy book called the DSM, which is the one that all supposedly all therapists use, and they're all supposed to use it for the coding of your insurance, essentially, is what the book is for. This is what oh, your right. client has. This is the code we use. Blah, blah. Yeah. But in it, we have all of the descriptors about all of the mental illnesses that we function about, right? So in there, um, we had separated autism and Asperger's. We had said Asperger's is like autism, but it's also kind of different. Um, and then there's classic autism or canner autism, which is um, the one that I was describing when I was talking about myself, where someone is typically non-speaking or a behavior problem or has very external stims that everyone can see, um, stuff like that. Um, and that's typical canner autism, right? Um, and what we see with people who were at the time diagnosed with autism, uh, with uh, Asperger's syndrome, people had um, generally clumped together higher IQs, tended to not have issues with um, speaking, um, tend to be um, high functioning is what they like to say, mm -hmm. um, and uh, things like that. Now, we're now in the DSM-5. And it's 10 years later. And in the making of the DSM-5, they realized that Asperger's syndrome is very much a part of the autism category. Um, and really, the differences um, aren't as easy as they were describing previously. So what they did was they umbrellaed us. And they said, we're going to call it autism spectrum disorder now. And under it is are all of the things. So there were um, a bunch of different uh, psychological um, diagnoses that were under there, Asperger's, autism, um, personality disorder, um, not otherwise associated. They had all these other ones, right? Um, right? But the point is, what they did was they brought out the new book and said, they're all autism under this autism spectrum disorder. So all of us that were diagnosed with Asperger's can now freely say we have autism and we don't have to say that we're this separate thing, um, which really brought our community together. It was really an opportunity um, to stop separating us into groups and, and kind of use our strengths with each other um, in that way. Um, so we're sort of in that place. So what is it? Well, it hides itself in this DSM book. So um, on a very surface level, we, we treat it as a psychological issue right? Um, that is the handbook that it falls under. However, um, it is also, it's called a neurodevelopmental disorder. So if you pay attention, it means that your neurology is developing differently, right? And that is very much a biological situation. That is not, right? It's very much a medical quote, quote unquote situation, a neurologist situation, right? Mm -hmm. So what my answer to you is that that is the floaty place that autism lies in. Um, people tell us we have mental health issues, and that's not quite true. And people also tell us that we um, need a cure because we're medically broken, right? And that's not true either. Um, and so there's been a lot of assumptions about autism that now kind of freely floats in this space, which... Oh, shoot, froze. Oh, it was such a good train of thought. Okay, I'm just going to wait. I know it'll come back. Um, is not psychological or oh now the video's gone can you hear me yep i did that oh okay okay sorry Sometimes to come back faster <laughs> yes it's true that worked it, you came right back when you did that there you go okay <laughs> oh so some of that got cut off but that's a that's okay uh, uh alex yeah um and my thought, my question got cut off. Oh yeah, people people thinking that they need to fix you for some reason that there's something they need to fix. Uh, I've always thought that was an odd um, response to mm -hmm. to autism and you know to, to it, that. It has a, and, a and, place. I mean, it doesn't yeah. come from nowhere, right? Right. Um, when right. we were first talking about autism, when everyone was first learning about autism and studying autism, um, we were looking only at people who had very external challenges, right? So mm -hmm. challenges that other people could see and experience. So someone who um, has a lot of really obvious stimming or someone who has vocal tics 
or someone who can't do certain things on their own and needs a support person or someone who doesn't speak and uses a device to communicate, right? Um, and though that was the picture of autism that we were looking at. Um, and we weren't necessarily looking at anybody else. So what they were saying is why should somebody suffer like this, right? In this way, we should look to fix it, right? Because that's the population that they were looking at. Well, come to know when you talk to the actual people who are actually autistic, suddenly they're not really suffering, right? And we talk instead about our experience with the world and how misunderstood we are, right? So people who are non-speaking are often assumed to also be low IQ. They're also assumed to not be able to communicate in any way. Lies, 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 right? Put them on a computer or put somebody with a phone or an AAC unit and they can communicate up the wazoo. Some of our best writers in the autism community cannot be verbal, right? They can't speak. And that well, doesn't mean that they're not in there, right? right? And so what was happening is we were suffering from people trying to fix our supposed suffering. Yeah, right? I thought we learned all that from Rain Man. Well, kind of, except that Rain Man stuck us in that one stereotype for life, and now we're all right. Rain Man, right? Yes, but, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that's part of it. But, you know, it's like th there's there's different components of it that weren't being thought about. And now that... Um, we're learning more and information is coming out and we're researching and all of this stuff and people like me are getting diagnosed that can articulate our childhood experiences, right? And mm -hmm. we're learning all of these things. What we're finding out is that autism at its very base is just another way of being human. And that's it. That's and very, like, that's very interesting. I mean, as we're peeling it apart, yeah, it's just becoming that. That makes a lot of sense to me because um, I don't know where I've heard this theory. I don't know where I got this exactly, but there is some some speculation that it's actually an evolutionary um, change. Uh, yeah, have you we, we studied I that mean, at all? In every community, we have, um, I think, people that are a little bit extreme. Um, mm -hmm. And there are people, I think, that within the community that are so very, very desperate for us to be seen in a positive light instead of as a problem a, that needs to be fixed and cured and a squeaky wheel and all of these things that we're always looking to explain the positives of being on the spectrum. Um, and in, in an effort to do that very early on, we had a lot of people who were saying basically that autism makes us the next X-Men, essentially. Like, we're going to be the next race of humans of superior evolution. I don't know. Maybe we will. Maybe as the COVID crisis continues and our world changes, maybe it will become more accommodating to autistics and then we will have more success as a community. I hope that's the case, right? Um, but do, are we genetically inclined to be a superior being? No. No, I don't think so. Because um, I, I don't, it's not that the way that we are is better. It's just different. It's just different, right? Yeah, I was thinking more of uh, not necessarily superhumans, but um, you know, evolution is very clumsy, and yes, maybe our brain is is maybe the human race's brain is changing a little bit. It and it, you know, evolution is very slow, so maybe to, you know, some people are, and this has probably always been true, but we haven't seen it because, like right. you say, people that had this. Uh, that, that were like this were just put away forever. I mean, you know, how many thousands of years? How can we did, ever know, right? Yeah, how can we ever know? Because they would have been put away, well, in prisons uh, in mm -hmm. a, not very long ago. They would have been put in institutions. Not very long ago. Not, yeah, not we very long ago. The like time. 50s, I mean, 60s. Right. Yeah. We just recently closed some of the worst of these places, right? Like just recently. It's a little scary when we think about how recent it is, right? And there is the possibility, of course, that this is a step. You know, we also, you know, evolution happened is sloppy and you, there's missteps in evolution and there's failures in evolution and there's successes, right? And that's the way that it all processes out. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is that I think, and this is a little bit woo-woo, so you can ride me with this one if you want. But I think as a society, we're moving more to be so tech-based um, and that everything is becoming more accommodating, um, mm -hmm. more convenient, right? And in that process, autistics are finding success because we're accepting different and we're accepting a new way of doing things. 
Um, one of the things autistics struggle with is doing a nine to five office job, right? And for years, that was the only way to work was right. nine to five at an office job, yes, right? Yes. Now we're in a gig economy and gig economies work great for the autistic brain. Working from home works great for the autistic brain, right? Um, anything that kind of helps us with our struggles, our challenges works for the brain. It just so happens that our society is swinging in a direction that really assists folks on the spectrum. That's really to our benefit. Um, and COVID fast forwarded a bunch of it for us. Thank you very much. Um, for example, I <laughs> was right. one of the few people that I know that had managed to pull off working remotely for myself as an accommodation to my autism. And I'd asked for remote accommodations in regular jobs before and had been denied. That's not how the company does it. We've always done it this way, blah, 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 right? Well, suddenly pandemic, if suddenly everyone can't all of a sudden do their entire business remotely in a week, it took a week for them to do that. And when all of us were asking for disability accommodations, it couldn't be done. But when money was involved, boom, if we can't get it done, right? So it, yep. it's now a world that's leaning even more towards a more accessible way of living for autistic folks. So I think we're seeing also the number of folks that are willing to talk about it come out. So it's it's like happening at the same time and it just happens to work really well together. Um, I don't know that that was anything to do with evolution, though. but we'll find out. We'd have to stay alive a lot longer to find well, out. I guess part of that question comes from, um, well, for one, you've studied, you've actually studied it more than anyone else that I, I've talked to. Uh, and um, uh, there seems, you know, I understand that there's way more people diagnosed with it every year. Like it, yep. it, the, the number goes up every year. So I've also wondered, well, is that because they have a new book now, you know, and right. they, it, it's recognized now and parents are looking at their kids and going, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is autism, you know? So mm -hmm. is that a big part of it or are the numbers actually just, are they rising beyond, um, you know? beyond that explanation. Such I a, it's, it's a multi-phased answer. So part that count, those numbers that we're talking about, right? They come from the CDC. Mm -hmm. The CDC numbers come from a very specific study that's been ongoing for quite some time. That's why we have that continuation of numbers. But the only ones that are being counted in that study are people that were diagnosed by eight years old when they began that study. So if you weren't eight, the year that they did started that study, your number isn't going to be counted in those final numbers. They're only looking at eight-year-olds. Interesting part of it, okay? Um, the other piece of it that we're seeing is um, our information load about autism. As we're, you know, we're moving on, and obviously as other autistic people are speaking and we're, they're participating in research and we're learning, um, information is changing. And so when we find out all of a sudden that somebody who is a very good speaker. I was hyperlexic and hyperverbal as a child. So I spoke all the time and I was reading at college level um, before I was really in school, right? But I have autism. But they weren't looking for me because I was talking. I was using big words. I was right. And so right. all of a sudden now we understand that someone with that profile can still be autistic. So of course you're going to have more numbers. We're also getting better at diagnosis. We used to only diagnose children. We used to only diagnose children between four and six. We now diagnose children as early as two, right? And we can mm -hmm. diagnose adults until the day before they die, right? And so we are learning and those numbers are being counted, right? And those numbers are increasing because our diagnosis is getting better. It's getting more um, available, the diagnosis. Um, it's getting more commonplace. It's losing its stigma. All of those things are happening at the same time. So all of them lead to more people getting diagnosed and higher numbers. Right. Um, but what we're still not seeing is a real count. So I can tell you those numbers are most definitely fake. Um, not fake as in like they're making them up, but fake as in they're not accurate. Um, because adults that are getting diagnosed in adulthood are not being counted. Um, there are folks who can't afford a diagnosis right now. Um, there are folks who don't have English as their first language that don't get a diagnosis. Um, most of our communities that are suffering in poverty don't get diagnoses. Um, because an autism diagnosis is not covered by insurance. So whatever oh. age you are, you have huh. to pay out of pocket. My diagnosis cost me $6,000. So if you're an adult and you want a diagnosis, 
and it's going to cost you $6,000, your first question is, well, what is it going to get me? What do I get for my diagnosis? Nothing. We mean nothing. Nothing. If you're lucky, you'll be annoying enough and per, per like just on it enough to get yourself SSDI. Maybe, right? If you can fight that fight and, and put in the paperwork enough times. But we don't have supports. We don't have services. Um, there's no true accommodations. There's nothing that an official diagnosis of autism does for you as an adult to benefit you. And it costs you $6,000. So we have a bunch of people who self-diagnose in adulthood that are also not being counted. Um, so that's what I have to say, is that it's um, logically, yes, that number is going to continue to go up. Of course it is. Our testing is going to continue to get better. We're going to know more about autism, and that's going to help more people be identified. Hopefully, people like me and then do the work that I do will help beat down the stigmas and the stereotypes so that even more people can think about themselves underneath there and not um, avoid diagnosis because um, it's a bad thing to get, right? Nobody wants an autism diagnosis, right? And so um, that's sort of the idea, right? It's like, how do we grow and, and change that? Um, and when, as we're doing that, our numbers will go up. Of course they will. Um, and also, hopefully, we'll make it affordable and we'll be able to count some of the other folks. That sounds very similar to the um, the COVID diagnosis, mm -hmm. but somehow. Uh, the, the other thing, when you were I'm talking about, <laughs> it, it also sounded like for you, um, I mean, it's great that, that people do have places to go now to get support, and it uh, it. It sounds like for you, it was actually a really positive thing um, when you realized what was going on because um, yeah. you're no longer uh, in your mom's bedroom and you've been able to do a whole lot since your diagnosis. I think it's a foul. One of the greatest myths about autism is that autistic people don't like being autistic or you, that they don't want to be autistic, right? No, non-autistic people want us to be non-autistic. We don't want right. that. Okay. We like yes. being autistic, right? It's everybody uh -huh. else who wants us to not be autistic anymore. Um, and so it's sort of like, uh, how do I describe it? Um, it was a relief. It was uh, a validation. So it was like multi-phased when you're diagnosed late in life. When you know as a kid and the kids that we're seeing who are getting diagnosed as kids, they grow up with their diagnosis. It's in their house. It's part of their vocabulary their entire life. That's why we talk about early intervention so much, right? Um, but for those of us who were diagnosed late in life, it was however many years undiagnosed that you live, you spent that time um, living through the trauma of people invalidating your reality all the time. And so what it is, is you're autistic and you experience the world in a certain way. Um, but because neurotypicals assume that everyone processes everything the same way, um, we must be broken. It must be wrong. Right. So I am somebody who in particular is very um, light sensitive. I can't go most places without my sunglasses. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's painful to me, like literally painful to me if I don't have them in a in really bright light. As a child, I was told I was being dramatic. As a oh, no. child, I was told I was making it up. As a child, I was told I was uh, exaggerating, right? Um, and that meant somebody telling me that what I was experiencing was an untruth, right? And that's invalidating. Do that for 36 years, and suddenly you don't believe in yourself anymore. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, and the word... Uh... <laughs> the word for the rest of us being neurotypicals that almost sounds like uh, <laughs> i don't know yeah, um, some of us might not want to be so typical but uh it's interesting it's an interesting labels put on anybody um now here's one of my really silly bizarre questions elon musk think he's on the spectrum oh did i lose you or did i just lose your uh-oh. Gone. Well, I'll have to edit that out. Terrible question anyway. 
I'm so sorry. That's okay. I, I asked a really silly question and then you were gone. I thought I was just... I heard the question and I was so excited <laughs> okay. to answer it. Okay. Whether I think Elon Musk is on the spectrum. And I want to say, kind of hope not. He's a little scary. <laughs> oh, okay. See, I thought it would be encouraging for people. <laughs> I don't <laughs> if know. They, I mean, if they thought, there's some part of me that feels say. like he's diabolical in some way. Right. I, I can see that. I can understand that. Um, but I think a lot of that it seems to me a lot of that is because he has no social skills. I mean, he's proven that over Some and over. That that he he just, has limited social skills. Yeah. Some of that he has a lot of money, so he doesn't have to have social skills. Right. And then that <laughs> so, started very early in his life. Yeah, he's had right. a lot of money for a long time. So that definitely can make people lose uh, a lot of skills. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Uh, I just always wonder about that guy because, yeah, as he maybe he's, about he's like I, the I evil genius. Too. He's definitely like the evil genius. Right, exactly. Yeah. Wait, is he going to save the world or is he going to destroy it? Yeah. What, right. What's happening there? Absolutely. There's a lot to wonder. Jeez. <laughs> so, um, do you, let's see, do people treat you differently and um, how do you want to be treated? Yes, people treat me differently, but. Um, only when they know that I have autism. So it makes for an interesting thing. I'm somebody who now, obviously, I live openly and loud, autistic, out all over the place. So if you've known me for five seconds, then you'll know that I'm autistic. It's no longer an option for me. Um, but it used to be. Um, mm -hmm. I'm some, we use a lot of the same language that the LGBT community uses. So I passed for a very long time as neurotypical. Um, I can still mask. Um, my autism and pass as neurotypical if I want to, but it's exhausting and I don't want to. I like who I am and I, I like the way that I am and exist. And I don't think that anybody gets to tell me that that's not okay unless I'm out in the world killing millions of people, right? And so um, that's something that I had to get used to. That's something that I had to come to be. But the thing that used to, people used to say to me all the time, um, these are the pitfalls. So I'll give you the pitfalls of autism conversation. Someone tells you they're autistic. Do not say you don't look autistic. You sound foolish because I will say back to you, really, what does autism look like? And right. there is no right answer for it because we all look like other humans. And so it's really a crazy thing. The other thing is it's sort of invalidating again. It's sort of like, you know, you can't be right about your own autism. Well, that's sort of messed up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And because you think that I'm not autistic, I can't be like, right? And so that's sort of an odd way to respond also. And yet it comes out of people's mouths as though it's a compliment. Right? Well, it's, it's like someone you, saying, the well, you don't look. The last thing you want to be on this planet is autistic. Thank God you don't look autistic. Yeah. Right? That's the way that it's said. Um, and that's pretty terrible. Yes. Pretty terrible way to start out a conversation with anybody. Right? Um, but that's what happens. Right? The other thing that happens is, and this one's my favorite. Oh, it's so fun for me. Because sometimes I get to do, I get to play a little bit with people, right? And so I say, you know, I can say I'm autistic as part of the conversation. And immediately we get what is called infantilization, which means that people treat you like a child. So I could have been having a deep political conversation with somebody and mentioned, by the way, I'm autistic. And the next part of the conversation is, oh, Oh, can, can you, can you hear me? Or do you want me to repeat what I said? Or are you okay? Can we, right? And it's like, wait, you were just calling me an idiot two seconds ago for believing in whatever, whatever, but now you know mm -hmm. I'm autistic, so I'm a kid and I can't take care of myself, right? So that's part of the stigma, right? Um, being autistic doesn't mean that I'm incapable of self-care, right? It just, you know, my self-care looks different than yours. But uh, it doesn't mean that I need you to talk slower to me now because I told you I'm autistic. So that's another fallacy. Um, and then I think the last one and the one that we're really pushing right now is the idea that it's um, rude to call someone autistic. Like um, people always say, you shouldn't say autistic. You shouldn't say someone's autistic. You should say they're a person with autism. Um, well, no. For a couple of reasons. First of all, autistics like to be called autistic and it's our choice, so screw you. That's part of it, right? And that's a big part of it. But the other part of it is that being autistic is part of our identity, 
right? It's part of so much a part of who I am because our autism, our brain, right? Processes the whole world for us. Any piece of information that's coming into my person is going through my autistic brain, right? I'm autistic all day long. And guess what? I'm autistic when I'm asleep and dreaming too, right? I'm autistic all the time. So it's not something I take with me. It, it's something I am. I can't be like, you know what? I'm not going to take my autism with me today. I'm not going to be a person with autism. I'm going to be a person without autism today. Can't do that. It's not an option. So to say to someone that they can't say uh, that they're autistic or that you should say person with autism is actually um, wholly backwards and also rude. So that's the other piece of the whole thing, right? So there's, there's a, those are the pitfalls that I think most people without any um, meaning to be rude or with any um, malintent at all that they tend to do. That's, that tend to be the knee-jerk responses. It's interesting. It's because it's like someone saying they're Indian and, and the, right. you know, the other, the Caucasian person will say, you need, you mean Native American, right? Right. No, actually like, Cherokee, you if you like want to get more idiot. technical, you know, it's... Right. <laughs> It's like, like, no, no. So I completely understand what you mean. Uh, Yeah. It's like someone else. It's kind of like someone else choosing your labels. Yeah. You know, and it it doesn't go well. It's it's the problem I have with the the PC movement. Uh, I mean, I'm totally behind a lot of the stuff, but when you start pushing things on people... That's where you get the a lot of uh, pushing back. You know, yeah. labeling is is one of those things. It's yeah, it's really difficult to deal with. And I can totally understand people. Um, you know, I, I get your point about how you could uh, pass a, mm-hmm. as an uh, an idiot or what do you call it? An um, neurotypical. Yeah. Neurotypical. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, it doesn't. It there's nothing. It, it there's nothing you can point to uh, unless you know you and you've told you said yeah I you know I'm autistic. It's definitely. Yeah, and I mean any yeah. the things that are telltale signs of autism, things like not making eye contact can be fake. Right. Right. Like, I don't look so, at people in the eye. I look at them mm-hmm. right between their eyebrows. Oh, interesting. Eyes are weird. They creep me out. It's uncomfortable to look in the eyes. So I cheat. Why? Because it's easier than having someone tell me that I'm not listening because I'm not looking at them in the eye. Right. And so there are lots of little coping and masking mechanisms that autistics do to pass as neurotypical things Mm -hmm. that for whatever reason matter to the social neurotypical brain, but do not matter at all to the autistic brain, like eye contact. Right. Um, And so it's an interesting thing. It's like when you're autistic in today's world, you learn as a child to translate your autistic brain into neurotypical brain so you can communicate with other people. Right. Mm-hmm. But now that our numbers are growing, it'd be awfully nice if some of the time neurotypicals did some things the other way and they translated the other way. Um, but what we're finding out is that the neurotypical brain doesn't have that capacity necessarily. To, to do, it's easier for autistics to translate into neurotypical um, and that way, and then take it in as neurotypical and translate to autistic, right, inside themselves, than for the neurotypical brain to do the opposite. Um, I don't, we don't know why. I, my guess is because autistics have been doing it since they were children, and it's much easier to learn a foreign language when you're a kid, right? And so I, that's where I think it comes from. Um, but it'd be nice if the world was a little bit different than that, you know? The, yeah. And I wondered that when you were saying it too, is it, is it, uh, is it just the way our brain was trained, you know, as little kids we're taught certain things, uh, we're taught all this social cues when we're mm-hmm. really, really, you know, as soon as you can walk and talk to another person, you start learning all this stuff that you think the other person is supposed to act like, um, you, you would make a, a really good, you could do acting very easily because you've already I, I learned have, how to, yeah, yeah. You, you already know how you're already faking I, it when I, you um, look, look at someone. I mean, it's you're, one of always... those things. Um, I studied theater from when I was eight to 18. Right? Okay. Why? Yeah. First of all, because obviously I wasn't very good at giving people what they wanted. Right. And I couldn't figure it out. So when you took theater classes, that was an easy way to experiment with, embarrassing yourself and experiment with different ways of being and kind of get in the habit of putting on that mask and doing those things. The other thing that it did for me by accident is that it um, really gave me the ability to connect my brain and my body, which is something that the autistic brain struggles with. Um, 
And so I have lots of issues with coordination and I have issues with um, my facial expressions. But when you're in a theater class, those are exactly the things that you work on is your facial expressions and the emotions and how you're carrying your body and how you're using your voice, right? And so unbeknownst to me, I was doing my own therapy, right? I was doing all the things that they would have therapized me for now um, through theater classes. And that um, was a really, really lucky, lucky thing. Um, the other part of it is that theater people are weird. And so yes. when you're weird, hanging out with other weird people <laughs> is a really good way to hide, you know? Yep, I absolutely know. Yeah, uh, I love hanging out with theater people because they're weird. And, and you know, most people that get into theater and, and do a lot of theater, uh, and it translates into film too, film people are even weirder. I mean, Anything. yeah, then you <laughs> because then you not only have the weird actors, but you have all the crew and mm -hmm. someone that's going to spend their life uh, working that hard on that kind of art, it's our art, artistic project and doing things no one else really does yep. there's they're different you know they're very very different they types are, of people the truth is that's the exactly the kind of when we find autistics that have had success in life they have found a place where their strength and their interest and um the job match so when um for example really famous autistic um john alder robeson um written a bunch of books he was an engineer for metal rock bands, a sound engineer, because his sound sensitivity and his pitch is perfect and all of these things. Um, and he's so detail oriented. So he was a fantastic, like, at the soundboard, right? And, and, and magnificent at it. So nobody gave him a hard time for being different because he was really successful at this one thing. Well, what happens when the one thing you're really good at is so weird that you can't find a job? right? Or that kind of thing. And you can't find the place. Um, autistics hide in the most interesting places. Um, a lot of them hide in those kinds of really specific jobs, um, really specific skill sets. But the other place they hide um, is in the university community, where they get to major in their favorite thing and talk about it all day long and teach it to people that have to listen, right? So they hide there too, because that's another place where the autistic strengths are what you need for the job right is the ability to talk about the same damn thing every semester right? that makes a lot of sense because i've always wondered how people do that for their entire life uh, not right? only not only teach university but most people who are teaching at a university have gone to 10 12 you know sometimes 14 years of college yep. even after they start teaching they just they they love school they love that atmosphere and that right. kind of that makes way more sense to me that it's because they feel right there. That feels comfortable yeah. to them, you know, to keep keep learning and do a ton of reading. And, uh, you know, when you're teaching other people, you don't necessarily have to relate to them. Nope. Yeah. Especially not in a college environment, right? That's totally up to you if you want to be a professor that takes questions or a professor that doesn't, you know? It, it's certainly, you know, it, it's, it's up to you and your, your way of being. And I think that um, in and of itself makes it a comfortable environment. But what we aren't doing is saying to autistics, what's the comfortable environment for you? Or what do you like? Or what do you want to try? Or, hey, Bobby, I know you're only eight years old, but you seem to really like blocks. You want to look into architecture or something? You know what I mean? Like instead of taking those kids and saying, well, let's work with what you love and what you're interested in and let that thing get us where we need to go. They don't. They're told not to do their special interests. There's, it's taken away from them as a punishment and reward system, right? And it's used in this in a way that you would use to train an animal, right? Oh yeah, right. Same concept, right? Right. Um, instead of saying, "Hey, this is the thing you're really good at. It's the thing you really love. It's where you want to put your energy. How can we use it, right? How can what if what if mom spends some time, you know, learning about Thomas the Tank Engine so that she can have a conversation with you using the language that you want to use instead of complaining that your kid only wants to talk about Thomas the Tank Engine and doesn't have normal conversation, right? Because it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I've I've thought that about education, kind of in general, um, for anybody. You know, right. we 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 everything is so structured in the educational system. Even you know, even at home, even when you're little kids, everything and the, and you're supposed to. The other thing that blows my mind is people expect you to have a dream when you're eight years old, right. because they hear about you know a famous person 
who started doing whatever they're doing. Uh, for me, it's drummers. I hate drummers that say, well, I started at three years old. Mm. I'm like, well, I started at 19, so no wonder right. you're so damn good. But, but you know, it's uh, not being so structured and, and letting people do what they want, I think is something that could help in, in the entire education system, you know, well, in, in every Well, I would think about anyone. how many of us wouldn't hate school so darn much if we were allowed to do what we loved. Right. There's a reason that I had a 4.0 in college and that I could barely graduate high school because in high school, I was bored out of my mind. Half the things we were learning about, I didn't care about. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm in college and I'm taking my major, something that I love, something that I want to do a lot of. And holy goodness, if I'm not good at it all of a sudden. Right. Because it's being geared to me and I can take the amount of classes I want every semester, and I can take certain classes with other ones, right? Mixing my heart and easy. You have no control over that prior to college. None. Um, they just don't let you. They want a cookie cutter. Situation. Yeah, and that, it really amazes me. I was in a, a special, uh, like an experimental program in grade school where they were kind of gearing us towards going to junior high, and they were letting us um, go to cl different classes rather than just stay in a homeroom and, you know, decide what we wanted to do more often. And I, it's really sad that that didn't keep up, that more people don't try these different ways of learning. Um, right. it, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's also, I think, one of the reasons people get so up in arms about giving money to education. Um, I don't think there's any better way to change the world than giving money to, edu you know, than, than giving more uh, resources to education, right. but if the education is just the same for everyone and people aren't learning that well, then it doesn't necessarily work. So I completely see what you're saying. I mean, yeah, and especially uh, someone who who is different in any way, and you know, they want to learn differently, and everyone learns differently. Actually, I mean, my wife is an artist; she's a very visual person, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm a very re technical kind of person. So. Just everyone has a different way of learning. Um, so yeah, it it makes sense that <laughs> let people, you know, let people do what they, they're interested in. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it also comes along with um, people uh, give gamers a bad name, like you're, right. which I understand if your kid's spending, because when I grew up even 10 years before you, and you know, when we, when our parents got bored with us, they said, go outside. So mm -hmm. that, that was our, go outside and play. We didn't have a game. A TV had three channels. There was nothing mm -hmm. to do but go outside and, you know, roughhouse with each other. And so I do understand the um, the concern about people spending all of their time on a gaming console. And the, the other side of it is some of those people are getting really smart. Because, right. uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is not easy to figure out. And, well, if you think, you know, see, I sit on the fence about it, about screen time, especially because... In my particular community, screen time is very much um, a way for us to connect with each other, a way for us to connect, socialize, all of those things. <clears throat> so I, I'm not a big fan of, of curbing somebody's screen time. But what I do say is I want us to think about it a little bit differently, right? We all think that the way that we grew up is somehow the magical right way to be, right? Because we were thrown outside because our parents wanted us out of our hair and there was no choice. Clearly the being thrown outside is the way to go. And so if you're being thrown to your basement on a video game instead, that's wrong, right? But no, it's the same behavior, right? It's not safe to throw our kids outside anymore. Lord knows it wasn't safe back then either, right? But our parents thought that it was, right? They would be like, okay, well, when you see the street lights come on, time to come home, right? Yep. That was the rule, <laughs> Yep. right? And like, that's a crazy thing, but that's what we did, right? And if you think about it now, if we do that now, we're the crazy parents. You're going to let your kid be outside alone without supervision when it's getting to be evening time? Are you crazy? We, we would tell someone they were a poor parent if they did what our parents did, right? And so every like generation, every group is going to have the thing they think is the right way to parent. And then the thing that they find out they were totally wrong and the next generation is going to do it their way right? You go back, my grandmother had her right way of doing things too. There was, you know, and the way she let her kids play. But what we have to do is grow as a species. We have to like, times are a change in technology is a big thing. If your kid doesn't know what they're doing on technology, they are going to be at a loss when they get out into the world because everybody else does, right? It's not like how uh, I remember when we were first getting computers, right? And it was like a 
a big deal if a kid got a computer, right? Well, now, if you don't grow up with a computer, you're like growing up without an arm, right? You need yeah. to enter the job place, the workplace these days with an assumed skill set of computer knowledge, right? And it will soon be that the social networking portion of business, when those kids grow up, when they want to have side conversations, they won't be golfing. They'll be playing video games. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're, it was a real eye opener when everyone had to go to school on a computer. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's you know, it's a big change for the world, and it also is um, right. And so, what, who are we? No, please don't. All right. Coming back. There we go. Okay, there we are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it it was uh it was amazing that people figured out so quickly how to teach on the computers, but then it did leave people out because there mm -hmm. there were, you know, thousands of kids who can't afford a computer and, and right. maybe especially one good enough to watch a class on. Because you you know you have to have a certain level of internet. You have to have a, a something that's good enough to at least yeah. to look at the internet and that's up to date, so that um, everyone's not watching you through your camera when you're right. in class. You know, so there. Yeah, it's a big adjustment, but um, definitely it's a skill set that everyone is is required to have now. I um, I don't know if that's good or bad. I kind of fell into it because of my interests. You know, I learned computers a long time ago just because of I wanted to do stuff on a computer. Um, right. But now, yeah, it's more like you but have to learn. think about that, right? If somebody yeah. had cultivated that interest in you, somebody had said, oh, you're really good at computers and you really seem to get it and you're like interested in it. That very well could have been a career for you, right? And that very well could have been a very profitable career for you considering the time that you were coming up in, right? But it was the new thing. Can't trust that, right? Too new, too scary. So nobody, right? And that's, but that was the mentality, right? These days, I think parents would say, hey, learn that new skill. You never know what you're going to need because that's the world we live in now, right? We don't live in that safety bubble that 70s and 80s were where parents had, everybody had a job. They kept the same job at the phone company for 40 years. Then they retired, right? It's not like that in the world anymore. And so we have to accommodate and we have to teach our children in that way. We have to teach them for the now, not for the what was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The only thing I was talking about with, with sending people outside is that it, fresh air is very important. Oh, yeah. That's well, that all. <laughs> it's more like, you know, movement and, and uh, getting seeing the sun and, and talking yeah. to trees and things that's that's important stuff but yeah. yeah that's that's the other side of that is you got to set a little bit of a time aside um and uh statistically the only reason the world looks scarier is because there's more news about the world uh, definitely. it's actually safer yeah we know more <laughs> but as far as incidents you know per population the most areas um are, are safer for kids, which is interesting. Yeah, well, when my parents were throwing me outside till the lights were on, we were talking about all the people out in the white van, don't get kidnapped by the white van guy, right? Because that was all the news we had. We had that one scary thing, and that was the one scary thing. Right. Now there's right. so many scary things. And we had no idea how many of those white vans were around. No, everybody I, had a white van. Everyone, we all had the yeah. same white van. I mean, we didn't know as a society right. how many of those people were actually out there, because it right. turns out now when we look back, it was a lot of them. It, it's, you know, I'm watching uh, shows about uh, the um, serial killers in the beginning yeah. of that study, and it's really scary. It's, it's like right? no one had, no no police con communicated with each other, so they had no idea, no idea. about that, that that was happening. Going, All over the country. Same thing. Yeah. Yep. But All different throw people. Your kid out till the lights come on. <laughs> attitude, For, right? Fortunately, there was only 30 or 40 of them. So, you know, as far as the entire populace, your chances were still pretty low, but you know, no one knew about them at all right. when they, they we yeah. didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it in school. No. It wasn't all right. over our news, nothing. No, and we didn't watch the news. I mean, that's no. something I didn't start watching the news to really till nine eleven. That's that's when I started kind of being glued to the news. And a little bit I lived in Los Angeles and we had three different massive incidents where the things were on the news twenty four hours a day, you know, earthquakes, fires, riots. Those kind of things, which mm -hmm. in there, so that's when I kind of start. But as a kid and a young adult, even, I never watched the news at all. Right. That wasn't, it wasn't interesting to me. And now I watch the news knowing 
it's completely wrong or, you right. know, not and just to get not, mad about it, just, just, so like, can just to get mad about it. It's like my news says the things that I'll get mad about. And right. the other side's news says the things that they'll get mad about. And yep. most of it's wrong. You know, if yeah. you if you really research the story, it's like, well, you got that totally wrong. Uh, you know, when it, <laughs> if there's ever a story that you're close to, which has happened to me, like I knew the actual story and I saw the national news story, I was like, whoa, whoa, that's not even close. You what? Right. And what? then everybody's believing that story. That's the story yep. everybody knows. And that's a scary thing. Is that everyone believes that story? So if you put out mm -hmm. a story that you know COVID nineteen is not very dangerous, and that hits the news national news uh, and perhaps it is very dangerous for certain people then it, it causes a huge problem it causes a huge huge problem we're seeing that now i mean even people in the news talk about how it turned into entertainment entertainment news should not be really shouldn't be entertainment exactly i mean it it can hopefully be entertaining, not. I mean, but you yeah. hopefully would hope there's some fact in there somewhere that keeps it from being a cool graphic on the screen but you know you never know and, yeah. that, and I think that that a lot of that did it's I remember though it sort of beginning with the Challenger explosion when the Challenger explosion happened they got their own graphic it was like the first time that a news story had its own little graphic on the TV I remember just being like this is so weird why you know what is this happening and that I feel like news started to change around then yeah that sounds about right that sounds about it's well what I've heard I haven't explained to me by news people it's when the uh when cable hit, oh. and instead of having three news networks, which were actually funded by the networks, they did not need any funding. They didn't need advertising dollars. Didn't matter. They they ran ads, but it didn't matter to them because the the networks funded them because that's uh, I think there was some kind of government regulation that said if you're going to have a big network, you're going to have a half hour news show every day. And so the news was the uh, they were independent basically, and they reported. Uh, they really dug into stories. Plus, they had weeks and even months. Right. Where now we have seconds. So cable hit, everyone, this is a total tangent, but cable hit and, and suddenly there's not three news networks, there's 10. And now mm -hmm. there's, you know, a ridiculous, there's everybody on the internet is a news network. Right. And that turned it into a competition where if you don't get the story out immediately, you're, you're behind and you're no longer news somehow. Which, yeah, and that's where it turned into entertainment. And now it's just, a, uh, and yeah, I can go on, but I won't. <laughs> I don't know. It's terrible. It really is. And it's, you know, I work with a community that it's fairly easy to take advantage of, right? That really wants to believe that what people who say they're supposed to speak the truth aren't speaking the truth. And that's just not the way the world is. And I am, you know, we get a lot of folks who, like when COVID started to come out and it was Early in the beginning, it was a lot of mixed messages. There was no idea what was really happening, you know, because it had to come out so fast. We have to tell it before we know it, right? right. It was the mentality. Yeah. And it freaks out people, the, the um, speed at which the information is coming. And often at that time, it's um, usually cross-hatching. So it's like they're, they're doing saying opposing things from each other all over the place. And there's no way to kind of decide what's real. How do you figure out in that mishmash what is the real and what should I do to protect myself? Um, and so I ended up telling a lot of people like, stop watching so much, <laughs> like stop doing it so much. Right. Because part of it is that if you sit there all day long, you will see a new news story every 10 minutes if you want to. But if you wait, you know, you check it in the morning and then you check it in the evening. If it was important enough for everyone to be talking about it, you'll find out in the evening, it'll be there. Somebody will be talking about it. You know, and then you miss out on the little fly by night stories that are unimportant, right? The other thing is to just pick one or two places that you like your news from and just stay there. Like stick with your news. You know, I followed the CDC. I felt like, you know, they're not great, but at least they're better than what I would consider the majority of entertainment news stations. So I followed the CDC and I followed the World Health Organization because those ones were the ones that felt like they were giving out actual information that would be helpful to me in the now, right? Rather than speculating or assuming or whatever. Um, and by doing that, I didn't have to take in all of the nonsense that was out there. I just had to take in what I needed, right? To, to functionally get by. Um, because the truth is we all have a certain amount of control in the world over a certain amount of things. Um, and it's a pretty small amount of things, but they're the things that affect us directly. The rest of that stuff is sort of out there. You can't do much about it. 
um, worrying about it or yelling about it doesn't use your energy well or smart, you know, um, and, and all of those things. So deciding kind of where to be and who to watch your news from and just not to get on the wave of everybody in a panic and the need to know now, everything now. And right? the, yeah, that's a really, I think that's extremely good advice because I try and get my, uh, I watch kind of too much of it because it becomes a fascination, but then I listen to two things um was listening to him every day i've backed off now that it's gotten worse but there's a um a doctor in england he's actually a nurse practitioner and a researcher and he is on youtube every day telling information um you know he he, he has a long he t breaks it up longer and says this is the actual research we're seeing now Mm -hmm. And this is what this country's doing. This is why this country's going up. This is why this country. And so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more um, easier to digest and it, it makes a lot more sense. And, you know, he's using real scientific information rather than just a news story that he heard. Like he's not, and right. he's trying to stay non-political. He's been very, <laughs> he's That's obviously good, on right? one side of the, I mean, of the politics, the but he's trying not to be. Yeah. The way that he's presenting the information works for your brain. Right. Right. And right. It's the amount and the way that you need to hear it. And that's what I want people to understand. All of this stuff that's out there on social media, all of the news, all of that stuff, you control what you take in. That is your job. You are in charge of what channel the TV is on, how long it's on. Right. That is all stuff within your control. Can't control what the politicians are going to say or do. Next time you turn on the news, you have no control over that. But you can decide not to turn it on. Right. And the hope is that you turn it on and you get the information from a place that works for you, that doesn't put you in a panic, but makes you feel informed, right? And you, you take in your nugget and then you keep living your life. Because if we all just get sucked into these, these different, all the different stories and theories and who's going to do it first and when it's going to be over and all of this, all this speculating, right? Um, we're not taking care of ourselves in the now. And if you're not taking care of yourselves in the now, when whatever they're speculating about happens, you won't be well to take care of yourself in the then, right? And so I hate seeing people just so um, engaged and absorbed by the speculation about the future while not paying attention to what's going on in their home and their health in the now, right? Um, it's just another way to be distracted from your real life and your reality. Um, and so it, it's, it's as unsafe as having a gambling addiction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. You want to make sure you, you're not yep. doing anything in excess to where the other parts of your life begin to suffer. I think that's a, a really, really good message. Um, I think I'm even going to end on that message because mm -hmm. you uh, that is um, that's such a good point. And I just, you know, I, I was just reminded of that yesterday is that right now, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of information hitting people. A lot of people are going through uh, life tragedies, why this happens, whether or not they have a family member or someone who works uh, who works with it every day. Uh, a lot of us, though, are not. And we do have to remember that uh, it is important, uh, your home taking care of your whole family. A lot of people are taking care of everyone around them. But also, yeah, look at yourself and you know, check in with yourself. Do what you need to do. Uh, to be to feel right, to feel comfortable. I think that's um, a really good good message to put out there. Um, remember to to check in and with yourself and and be uh, do things you need to do to feel good. You know whether that's yeah more I mean, gaming we're, we're or taking walks for those parts of our lives. Right, that's yes. it's not going anywhere. That all the people making the news aren't going to turn around and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, we distracted you from your life. Can we help you do the laundry?" Right. That's not going to happen. You got to do your laundry. You got to keep your house clean. You got it. You know, and, and the other part of it is that we're, we, it's an, we're in an advantage place. There's a lot of horrible, horrible things happening right now. But along with those horrible things, um, you can also um, take advantage of the time and, and be positive about it. So I look at it like this. Um, lots of horrible things are happening. But for this horrible thing, the entire world is on pause, like the whole world. When does that ever happen where you, the whole world is on pause and you can pause too and focus on your life, making your house better, making where you live better, making how you take care of yourself better because nobody is judging you for that right now because everybody else is on pause too, right? So nobody's saying, how could you just be sitting around reading a book? You should be at where? I can't go anywhere, 
right? And so it's a great time to take that pause and readjust. Were you living a life you really weren't happy with, but you were just in a routine? Were you, you know, accepting things you don't want to accept anymore now that life is different? What What are the things that you can use this pause for to change, right? Or, you know, it's a great time to shift careers for people if they're looking to shift careers because everything's sort of rephasing and changing into different things. So um, I say, you know, it's easy to get sucked into all the negative by watching all of the news. But if we separate ourselves from it enough that we give ourselves the break, we can use this time as a time to create, a time to build things, rebuild things, um, and create and put out into the world because we're all sitting still and watching. That's so true. So true. It, um, yes. I, I completely agree. The only part was how often do I have to do my laundry? I don't, I don't know. That's really I mean, up to you. I'm in like, I can I'm wear not. a set of pajamas for a couple of days in a row and no one yeah. cares yet. So, you know, once Kinda a week. Kind of wearing the maybe. same thing. Yeah. yeah. Once a week. Once yeah. a And so. that's the other thing. No one cares about that either right no now. No one cares. Exactly. Haircuts don't matter. Whether your breath smells doesn't matter anymore. You got pajamas on on the bottom. No one cares. Right. And all of a sudden we only care about the work itself. And how magical is that? That's right? amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a beautiful thing. It really is. It's a beautiful thing. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a, a really really nice episode. I hope I, I've put out some information there. Um, you have a lot to say about something that I think most of the population doesn't have any idea about. So, yeah, this has been. Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and my guest today has been Becca Laurie Hector, and we have been talking about uh, autism and the autism scale and really smart stuff. So that's, that's what I like to do is have people smarter than me on the show so that it can be worth something. So again, uh, be good to each other, and a special note today, really, take care of yourself. <laughs>